Welcome to So You Think You Can Rule Persia, the podcast where we rate and review all the kings of Persia from Diochis to Yazdegerd III. My name's Ariel, and my pronouns are they, them. And I'm Umberto, and my pronouns are he, him. Hello, everybody, and welcome Hi. to episode 60, Shapur I. We're two-thirds of the way there, Ariel. Wow. Roughly. I still haven't decided. <laughs> Might change. The ending is complicated, legitimacy-wise, so I need to still figure out who's legitimate there, but we'll get there. We're roughly two-thirds of the way. So, yes, we are at the second king of the Sassanid dynasty. If you remember last time, Ardashir created this new empire, reformed everything, made it all nice and pretty, and hooray, we have a new dynasty on the throne. How do you think Shapur is going to do? Because so far we've had, I was looking back in our list, and a Shahanshah has followed a Shahanshah only once with Darius and Xerxes the first, yeah, respectively. They were awesome. Everyone else, a Shahanshah is followed by a Shahanshah. Well, because it's, you know, it's really hard to have two people in a row that are so remarkable. Yeah. So do you think Shapur is going to live up to his father? Or do you think he's going to be more of a chill stabilization time? Or do you think he's going to be more of a everything is collapsing again? Oh no, oh no. I hope not. I would love some golden age stuff. And knowing how we just inaugurated this new dynasty and we like made it legitimate by all means necessary... And his mm-hmm. father took a lot of time to do that and to erase anything and everything from the previous dynasty. I'm hoping it'll last a little bit longer. So I will be hopeful and I'll say this will be really amazing and we might have to get a Shahanshah after a Shahanshah after all. Okay, that's exciting. I'm wondering... I'm hoping, you know? Yeah, we can see. I don't think we're ever going to get three in a row, but, you know, the future will tell us. Let's see if we get another Ambitious. two in a row. We've only had it once. Let's see if this is... The, the fact that you're bringing it up and kind of hopeful makes me think that at least he's not going to suck. And things are not going no, to immediately collapse. he is not going to last collapse. five minutes and die. Yeah. Spoilers, he lasts more than five seconds. You can look at the length of this episode, which I yeah. do not know yet, but I have been told that it might be long. So... Yes. Based on predictions, it will be long. So, is it long because of chaos or not? Let's find out. Yeah. So, first of all, let's recap Ardashir I, Ardashir the Great, and see what his deal was, what happened in his life. Well, Ardashir was a minor local king in Persia, and he slowly grew all the way to becoming king of Persia itself through possibly murdering his brother. We don't know. We don't know. He then rebelled against the Parthian king Artabanus IV and managed to defeat him in battle, kill him personally, and manages to take over all of the Parthian Empire. But not only that, he manages to take out Volagasis VI, the pretender in the west. He manages to subjugate the Kushan Empire in the east. So 
he takes some lands from them and they're vassals now, so great. Then he also fights with the Romans. He yeah. comes to a stalemate with them at one point. There is a bit of a pause in the war where the Roman Emperor dies. Then Ardashir charges in and manages to take a few cities, which is very impressive. Ardashir also then tries to reform the empire to ensure that it's more stable and more centralized. He gets rid of a lot of the least useful vassal kings. He institutes a new system where his sons are basically temporary kings of important areas of the empire. So it's not a hereditary title. It's just something that you're given by the king of kings. So that makes everything a lot more stable. And uh, yeah, everything seemed to be going very well. He erased a lot of the Parthian identity to make sure that his dynasty was seen as the most legitimate one. No, which is not fun, because that left us with barely any sources for the previous episodes. And also, yes, you which know, is sad. important context about the culture and what happened. Mm-hmm. But luckily, at the end, Ardashir pronounced his son Shapur co-king. And together they ruled for a couple of years. They captured the important city of Hatra, which had never been taken before, raised it to the ground, and then Ardashir died and left a throne to his son. Right. So let's see how that goes. Should have been pretty painless, right? Because they were already ruling together. So it doesn't get more, yeah. you know, streamlined than that, really. Yeah, also, not only that, but Shapur had helped his father in the conquest of the Parthian Empire mm-hmm. as a young prince, so everybody knows Pretty him. Pretty well established, yeah. Yeah. He's not just some guy, he is <laughs> a prince who has earned his place next to his father. Amazing. So yeah, so Shapur is a name that means son of a king. Shapur, in case it wasn't clear. You know. Still, <laughs> in case you didn't know yeah. who he was, Yar. And according to Al-Tabari... He was nicknamed Shapur al-Junud, which means Shapur of the Armies, which is, you know, a fair enough name. This is to distinguish him from another Shapur called Shapur Dulaktaf, which means Shapur the Shoulder Piercer. Uh Uh-huh. Tune in a few episodes from now to find out what that's all about. Okay. Dang. Unfortunately, we don't know too much about Shapur's youth. We just know that he was the son of Ardashir and somebody called Lady Mirod. And by the time Ardashir began his conquest, Shapur was already an adult, at least a young adult. So he was probably born sometime in the 190s. There is a legend which suggests that he was actually the son of Ardashir and a Parthian princess, supposedly the last living Arsacid, but... You know, as we saw last time, the dates don't really line up for this to work mm-hmm. because Chapur would have had to been born when he was actually an adult, and that's not how time works. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Wishful thinking, I guess. And yeah, so we saw that during Ardashir's takeover of the Empire, Chapur went along with his father and fought against the Parthians at his side. Even at the climactic Battle of Hormizdagan against the Parthian king Artabanus, a large relief commissioned by Ardashir tells us that Shapur killed Artabanus's prime minister, while Ardashir himself killed the rival king. Mm-hmm. So clearly he's being established as the proper heir who is parallel to his father. Yeah, everyone did important things, and everyone, you know, triumphed in battle, and yeah, everyone gets their right. triumphs and their, their accomplishments, yeah. is what I meant. And if the massive relief wasn't enough to tip the other sons off 
Ardashir called Shapur the gentlest, wisest, bravest, and ablest of all his children and made him his heir in front of all the nobles so that it's nice and clear. In later years, Shapur presumably helped out his father with his conquest and the reorganization of the empire. And Ardashir subjugated Nisibis, where apparently the walls just split open, and then the city of Hatra. And, well, from Hatra, we get a fun story from our Arab historian, Al-Tabari. Because, if you remember, Hatra resisted Trajan, it resisted Septimius Severus, it is notoriously difficult to capture, and the Sassanid forces had been besieging it for two full years. Mm -hmm. So how do they make it in? Well, one day, Shapur was outside in the camp, you know, Mm. drilling the troops, walking around, inspecting, as you do when you're besieging a city. And he caught the eye of the daughter of the leader of the city of Hatra, who, of course, fell madly in love with the attractive prince. How could you not? And, well, they began to exchange messages through the siege lines. Mm -hmm. And uh, the princess writes, What would you give me if I were to indicate to you how you could bring about the destruction of the walls of this city and how you could kill my father? I mean, you can, kind of like, you can fall in love with the, you know, very attractive person outside the walls, but, like, it, it's still, like, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't even, like, I can't even find my words right now. Like, he's still threatening your city, your citizens, everyone in there. I, like, I, how much yes. do you hate Someone agrees with you in this story. <laughs> yeah. But apparently, at this message, presumably imagining a uh, imprisoned princess who is being mistreated by all her citizens, Shapur replied, I will give you whatever you might choose, and I would elevate you above all my other wives and would make you my closest spouse to their exclusion. She then instructed him, take a silver-colored collar dove... That's difficult. ...and write on its leg with the menstrual blood of a blue-eyed virgin girl. That's very specific. Very specific. Like, don't know why we needed to know the details. Why blue eyes? I don't know. Dramatic. The princess then said, Then release this bird, and it will fly onto the city wall, and the city walls will crumble away. I don't know if this is how things work. Yes. Apparently, according to the Arab source, the defenses of the cities collapsed. And I don't understand if, like, literally the walls collapsed or if it was, like, an emotional thing where the (laughs) defenses left them or something. I don't read Arabic, so I can't confirm with the original text. The defenses collapsed. That was the translation. If someone can, let us know. And yeah, and and apparently the princess got all the city's defenders drunk before giving a signal to Shapur to enter the city and sack it at last. Well, again, I don't know... (laughs) This doesn't seem very ethical. Yes. Well, somebody agrees with you because apparently the princess was, as all princesses are, extremely fine and delicate. Oh. Apparently she was so pale that you could see down to the marrow of her bones. That's also not how that sounds like something you should get checked out. I, yeah. Please see a doctor. Yeah. And seeing such a delicate princess, Shapur asked her, how had you been raised? And when the princess told him, it was apparently with all the most extravagant care and luxury. Oh. So 
Like, apparently I found out you can get honey from virgin bees. That's... That is that... Sure, I guess. Okay, I'm gonna stop I mean... saying it, but... <laughs> to be fair, most honeybees haven't had sex, so technically yeah. accurate, but... Technically... You know, weird. That might be how that Weird works. to specify. In a weird roundabout way, you know. Yeah. So upon finding out that the princess had betrayed a father that had treated her so well... Mm -hmm. I was gonna Shapur say. Shapur became furious and tied her to the horse and had it gallop away until she died. <gasps> okay, that's very extreme. Um, so yeah, everybody is not doing but, a great but job But on here. the other hand, she did condemn an entire city. Yeah. Who apparently hadn't treated her that badly, so... No, they treated her excellently. She was like the best treatment possible. She was just like, she but decided, what is drama? Yep, kill them all. So yeah, she ended up Dragged to death by a horse, which is not fun. Yeah, okay. But hey, Prince Shapur has conquered a city. Huzzah. Yeah, I mean, lucky us, I guess. Just yeah. very strange circumstances. Yeah, it happens. It's weird. Princesses do weird stuff. Who knows? <laughs> women. Who can understand <laughs> Women. <them>? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, back in the realm of history, in the year 240, after the conquest of Nisibis and Hatra, Ardashir crowned his son as co-king. And great. Cool. This is going great. We even have a victory relief with Shapur defeating the Romans. But instead of wearing his own distinctive crown, he is wearing Ardashir's crown to show oh. that they're acting, at, they're basically the same person. Okay. The person of the king has defeated them. It's not just Shapur's victory. It's him and his father together. How can we tell? Because I assume... Uh, it mostly it go... looks like a different person. Okay, okay. I didn't know, like, yeah, how... Basically, you can tell that it looks like a younger man. Okay. I didn't know how, like, accurate the the pictures might have been. Because usually we go from, like, symbols and stuff. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. But based on what it looks like, it looks like it was commissioned by Shapur and... It looks vaguely like him, so it's like, okay, fine. There we go. All right. And yeah, the co-rulership of the Empire lasted for two more years, when Ardashir finally died in 242, leaving Shapur sole ruler of the entire Empire. Mm -hmm. So, let's see what we do. Well, the first thing we need to do is attack the Romans, because Always. we're currently at war with them. We just took a few cities off of them. Time to fight them. So Shapur decided, you know, since he'd recently captured Hatra, he invaded Syria and managed to put even the city of Antioch under siege, which was the third largest city of the empire. So that's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of unclear if he managed to capture Antioch this time, but we definitely know that it was at least besieged and at least the outskirts were captured. Oh. So good news. It's been, you know... At least 40 years since the last time we went on the offensive and won. Let's it's been a while. Goes. Yeah. Well, at this news, the Roman Emperor Gordian III... I don't even remember this name, if I'm telling you the truth. Well, you'll find out why. Yeah. Gordian III gathered a large army. He came from Rome, and he gathered people from all across the empire. We have some writing from Shapur himself where he says that there are a lot of Goths and Germans in the Roman army. So mm -hmm. apparently, yeah. coming from Germany in the Danube region. So there we are. And yeah, Gordian managed to 
get to the east, retake Syria, and then he pushed into Mesopotamia, where we're told that he won a first battle against Shapur. We're not sure how large this battle was, or if it was just a tactical retreat by Shapur, who wanted to get to more favorable ground, but whatever it was, he was made to retreat. But Gordian was so proud of this victory that he wrote to the Senate that he would soon arrive in Tessaphon and capture it for them. Okay. So, to warm up those Parthicus Maximus titles that are so fancy, and he'd be getting one soon. So, tell me how his demise went. Because I'm expecting yes. this was a bit too premature. Well, we have a series of different sources, Serial, because. Well, first of all, it looks like there was intrigue on the Roman side because a man called Philip made himself co-emperor with Gordian. Uh-huh. With Gordian's, like, knowledge or <laughs> just, like, That's in his That's kind house? of the mystery. <laughs> because Gordian then died mysteriously. Ah. Right. So what happens? There are two main options. According to Roman sources, Philip made himself co-emperor and killed his co-emperor Gordian becoming the sole emperor. Hooray. According to Persian sources, which we actually have, we have a document called, well, it's basically called the Res Geste Divi Sapores, which is to make a parallel with the Res Geste Divi Augusti, which Augustus had. Okay. So it's basically the deeds of the divine Shapur, Uh where Shapur tells us himself what he did. Oh, okay. Well, in these deeds, we are told that the Roman Emperor Gordian died in battle against him. Oh, okay. So, which is more likely? Unclear. Let's go through the versions themselves, because according to the Persian version, it looks likely that Gordian was killed in battle, because shortly after, once Philip became emperor, he made a very bad peace for the Roman side. He basically just gave Armenia and all of Mesopotamia to Shapur. Right, right. And if that hadn't happened, he wouldn't have had to give up so much. Yeah, if he had had a victory and then just usurped, he would have just continued to march on Tessaphon. Yeah. But that's unlikely. So maybe he did not usurp. At least he did not. He was not responsible for killing the previous emperor. Yeah. According to the Roman sources, everything was going super well. Then the evil Philip, who might have been a Christian, so extra discrimination points, messed up everything How and dare destroyed he? all the power. These Christians. Dang. Yeah. But yeah, according to Shapur's account, he just made a tactical retreat to more favorable ground, met Gordian battle, killed him, and then Philip was made emperor by the army because they just needed somebody to get them home. And then Philip said, please, please, we're sorry. We're going to leave. We'll give you anything. And Shapur said, okay, fine. If you give me Mesopotamia and Armenia, and a bunch of money, you can go home. So, yeah, we'll never probably have a 100% accurate version, but Shapur's one seems to be correct, because Philip is also a convenient scapegoat for the Romans, because he doesn't last long, and nobody Mm -hmm. liked him. So it might just be the historian saying, oh, it was this guy's fault, and Gordian wasn't the first Roman emperor killed in battle, he was just betrayed by an internal rival, and this doesn't count, actually. Yeah, but guess what, friends? Yeah, so there we go. And Shapur had a relief of himself made, where Gordian is under the hoofs of his horse being dead, while the king of kings gives Philip his blessing, and Philip is kneeling before Shapur on horseback. Yeah, that leaves it pretty clear, you know. So yeah, 
There's also a third character in this relief, but I'll tell you about him later. Okay. Of course, Serial, the Romans being Romans, as soon as Philip arrived home from having lost Armenia and Mesopotamia and an emperor, yeah. he began calling himself Persicus Maximus and Parthicus Maximus as soon as sure. he got back home. Uh, f- because, for yeah, what? Sure, let's go. Oh, you just still went there, so I guess you get the title. Yeah, it technically counts. It's, the title doesn't really mean yeah, it's anything. It's like a stamp on his cause... passport. Yeah. Why would it have any meaning? You're in the position, you get the title. Maybe if you repeat it enough, it'll become true. I think that's the Roman worldview. It just keeps going that way. I mean, this, like, if you convince people that you deserve the title, they might, you know. Yeah, I mean, if you're just a random plebeian in Rome, you don't know what happens in Syria and yeah. Armenia. It's just like, yeah, the emperor said so, sure, fair enough. Yeah. But Shapur didn't have much time to enjoy his victories because there were messes. Because news of this first retreat in front of Gordian caused a small rebellion on the Caspian coast, which was not great and Shapur had to deal with it. Yeah, rebellions are never welcomed. (laughs) Yeah, this might also be why Shapur was so quick to accept Philip's surrender, because... You know, sure, he could have continued the war or just taken the entire army prisoner or something. But then that would have meant the war has to continue and the rebellion would be at his back. Yeah. And that makes things unpleasant and dangerous. Yeah. Plus, like, we won. So, you know. Yeah, exactly. So we won. It was fine. We could have won more, but <laughs> we can be back. Eventually. How hard can you win? Yeah, exactly. Well, harder is the answer, Serial. I assume. But anyway, Chapur decided to go back to the east, and we don't have much detail, but we know that the chief of the rebels was murdered in a conspiracy, and Chapur just took time to properly subdue the revolt, to capture all the fortified cities, recovering, removing uncooperative nobles, and putting his own son, Baran, mm-hmm. who you'll want to remember, okay. as ruler of the region of Sistan in his name. Noted. So there we go. And yeah, I won't go in detail to avoid repeating too many names, but others of Shapur's sons and brothers were placed in control of local kingdoms across the empire, all of which remained loyal enough to ensure an effective distribution of power and use the empire's resources well. So, nice. Good stuff. Another important element to remember is more trouble in the East, because throughout Shapur's life, he was constantly somehow fighting with the Kushans. We have very little documentation, but we just know that it's there. And yeah, the Kushans are, just as, as a quick refresher, are the descendants of the Yuezhe that killed a lot of the early Parthian kings like 300 years ago. Hmm. And they had created an empire from Bactria to northern India, which had grown extremely rich and powerful due to its good position along the Asian trade routes. And yeah, they're sadly not very well known, but they were an important component between India, China, and the Sassanids. And the Persians often treated them as second only to Rome. So they were cool. We don't know much about them. That's a shame. But in any case, Shapur was successful enough in his war against them that he established his own Kushano-Sassanid kingdom under a minor member of the dynasty. So it looks like it wasn't like a fully vassal kingdom, it seems to have either had full independence or significant autonomy because its ruler called himself king of kings. So that makes sense. 
And yeah, this separation was probably kept to maintain the similar Arsakan structure that existed previously and to avoid any unnecessary turbulence in the region while we're actually fighting the Kushans. So we want to just hold this bit of the empire, not fully have to integrate it, just give it to somebody who can handle it, and then we'll look at it later in the future. The little that we do know is that this separate Kushano-Sasanian king did his best to try and expand his empire against the Kushans, and from time to time Shapur would come there and help out once the Roman threat was neutralized. So if there's no Romans to fight, he'll just head east and beat back on that border and see how it goes. But the Romans aren't done. As we know, Serial, it's difficult to not fight the Romans for once, so we need to go back. Because apparently about a decade later, can you guess where the trouble came from? From Rome? Yes, but which region on the border? Yes, of course. Of course. Because the Romans broke some sort of treaty relating to Armenia. So it looks like they maybe considered Armenia to be neutral instead of under Sassanid control. But we and they stopped it. paying their tribute. We ah. won it, but the Romans are saying, well, that was the previous emperor, not me. This, this is, is the Christ of the third century. Excuse me, They've this gone is not to like how it 15 works. Emperors. <laughs> yes, pretty much. Our treaty is with the entirety, like the, the concept of Rome and not with like yeah. a guy. Well, that is a loophole that people have often used. Yeah, it's not the first time. Yeah, I don't know why I'm the, discussing this. Yeah, One of the causes for the Armenian problem could have been that the Arsacid Armenian king fled from his kingdom to the Romans, where he was given asylum and mercenaries to retake his throne after Shapur put his son Hormizd as king of Armenia. Hmm. So the Romans are financing a king of Armenia against Armenia, which is now Sassanid, so that's a whole mess. Bleh. <laughs> Damn Romans. So at this point, Shapur decided, okay, time to teach the Romans a lesson. When you sign a treaty with Shapur, you respect the treaty. Yeah. Otherwise, I will come to your house. Because apparently Shapur quickly invaded Roma Mesopotamia, but he was called to the east of the empire to deal with the Kushans for a while. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't really paying his full attention. He was just small incursion. This gave enough time for the Romans to amass an army of 60,000 soldiers to fight back and invade Mesopotamia. Now that he's not looking, quick. Yes, now that he's not looking, run. But Jessica was faster than all of them, and she told <laughs> Shapur that, hey, look to the west. The Romans are messing things up. You might want to be here personally. Yeah, listen, we employ... Very skilled and competent messengers, so. Yeah, that's important to have. And Shapur arrived and met the 60,000 Romans at a place called Barbalissus. And now, Sarah, this isn't recorded by the Roman sources. The Roman sources say nothing about this. Sure, I'm sure, you know. But Shapur definitely makes sure to write this down. Because he absolutely annihilates the 60,000-man Roman army, which comprised a large majority of the Roman forces in the eastern of their empire. I wonder why nobody mentioned this in the Roman sources. Yeah, that's weird. I wonder why. Maybe they didn't want to write, hey guys, we were stupid and full of hubris and we got plummeted into the ground. Yeah, but based on what happens next, it sounds like it probably happened. 
Yep. Because Shapur has free reign to just go through Syria and do whatever he wants. Because he freely pillages all of that province. He captures the city of Seleucia in Pieria, which, if you might remember, was the port of Antioch, which used to have all the Seleucid royal tombs back in the day. Mm-hmm. So, captures that city, and this time, he definitely captures the city of Antioch. Yeah. This is the third largest city in the Roman Empire, now in Sassanid hands. <laughs> That's what you get! Did we get Armenia back? Did they start? Oh, yeah. We, we, okay. The Romans didn't touch Armenia. They were just making noise about it. Armenia yeah, I know, is now I know. firmly in the hands of Shapur's son. Or what? Well, we're still fighting the war. We still need to finish it. I see. We have time, Serial. We can take a lot more stuff for now. <laughs> and yeah, apparently the capture of Antioch was because of a guy from Antioch who was accused of embezzling public funds who didn't want to be prosecuted. So he just let Shapur in. Just open the gates of the city. You know, when you know what you're about. <laughs> yeah, it's like, ah, it happens. Looks like they were so stealthy getting into Antioch that some residents of the city only found out that they were being conquered when they <laughs> saw arrows raining down on them during a play. Oh, heck. Well, d- so, to conquer surprising. a city, do you need to, like... Attack all of its citizens? Like, wouldn't it be enough if it, like... Not really, but, you know, they might have seen some, like, loose arrows flying around. Oh, okay, because I'm like, are we murdering the city? Because that's not great. No, we're... Both, you know, in the normal common sense of things, of of course it's not great, but also in the, if you want to keep the city, you don't want a, a ghost city in your empire. That's kind of useless. Well, that is a very interesting point you're making, Serial. I will elaborate on it later because Shapur has a very specific tactic when it comes to capturing Roman cities. <laughs> okay. We'll see. You'll see how it goes. Also, funnily enough, the Historia Augusta, and only the Historia Augusta, hmm. says that the traitor who let Shapur into Antioch was made Augustus by Shapur, but we have zero evidence of this. Well, is we this, don't know if Shapur tried to have his own Augusta. puppet emperor. I'm just gonna... Yeah. I'm just gonna dismiss that. It's just the drunk students making stuff up. We know how it is. But yeah. And yeah, once he subjugated all of Syria, Shapur went to secure his northern border by ensuring that his son Hormizd was on the Armenian throne. He also subjugated the kingdom of Georgia and Iberia. Again, Iberia and the Caucasus, but Iberia. Yes, yes, not Spanish Iberia. Yes, that one. And it's also from this period that we get the really cool siege of the city of Dura Europos, which was conserved brilliantly in the desert because everybody just died there. And it was Ah. basically archaeologically kept in the last days of the siege. Oh, what happened? A landslide? People just left. They just won and they just decided to raise it and leave. Because apparently it's a Roman fort that was attacked by Shapur's forces, and we have evidence of mining and countermining operations underground by both sides, trying to dig under the walls or dig under the tunnels, digging under the walls, mm-hmm. all that. We have evidence of the Sassanids building huge earthen ramps to scale the walls, and even the use of poisonous gases in the underground war oh. by burning sulfur and bitumen, which is a sticky form of petroleum. So by burning these substances, they tried to Poison everybody underground, which was Literally chemical warfare. Yeah. 
And there's a very dramatic scene in the tunnels that was conserved, which is very cool. Because apparently the Persian soldiers found a Roman tunnel and planned to destroy it. There, the Romans tried to shoot back with ballistae in the tunnel. So these massive crossbows. Mm -hmm. And the Persians responded by building a wall of Roman corpses to shield them while advancing. Woof. And then the Persian workers set about trying to collapse the tunnel on the Romans. And we then find the remains of a Sassanid officer among a bunch of Roman corpses. Whoa. Where it was probably this last officer who decided to stay behind and sacrifice himself oh to, my God. to stop the Romans from going forward. This is so cinematic. Which is really epic, and I love it. Wow. Ambient storytelling. But yeah, and we still have it conserved. It's just there. That's yeah. really impressive. Woof. And yeah, in the end, Dura was sacked by Shapur and abandoned, and it was claimed by the desert until it was rediscovered in 1920, which hmm. is really oh. cool. Archaeology is fun. Fund archaeology departments, please. Yes. But anyway, back to the big picture, Shapur finished his pillaging of Syria, while his son, the king of Armenia, pillaged Cappadocia. And interestingly enough, Shapur didn't plan to keep any of these territories. Ah, okay. Because as you said, Serial, if you conquer a city and nobody lives there, it's kind of pointless, isn't it? Well, yes. You won't get any resources from the city, you won't get anything to happen, it'll just be there. Exactly. So what is the best way to harm the Romans the most while having to invest the least? But, like, you can get stuff from the city. You don't have to... You don't have to kill everybody there. Well, no, Serial. That's where you're wrong. Because Shapur decides that... Listen, if he tries to conquer all of Syria and Cappadocia, what does he have to do? He has to garrison the areas. He has to watch for rebellions. The Romans have the Mediterranean, so they can easily resupply and attack those regions and take them back from Shapur. So it's going to be a mess, and it's going to be really expensive, really costly, and he's going to get nothing out of it. But he still really wants the people, doesn't he? Yeah. You know, the people are the value you would get from the land. The empty land doesn't give you much value. Yeah. Does he just, like, relocate them to somewhere else in the... He relocates hundreds of thousands of Roman citizens to Mesopotamia. So the Romans have worthless empty cities, and Mesopotamia is now full of new citizens. That's so smart and so horrifying. Anytime you, like, anytime you displace people from where they live, obviously that has a huge impact on the culture and on the people that were living there, and, you know, because you take them from where their roots are. And also just, how do you displace that many people? How Because you can't just be like, hop on a plane... It is very complicated. I mean, you need to ensure that hundreds of thousands of people have enough to drink and eat. Yeah, while on the road. They have to walk hundreds of kilometers to get to their new homes. That's ridiculous. Which is pretty intense. This is a really massive logistical effort. Like, if you think moving an army that size is complicated, imagine moving a bunch of random civilians with children and ill people. What the, I, I mean, I mean, okay. Like, I am really glad that at least he didn't just kill everybody, because that would have yes. been the worst. But I'm glad that he's like, no, no, no. But like, there's still value here. 
So let's just bring the value to our, you know, which since it's not that easy to travel, I don't think you get an influx of citizens that often. And also cities weren't as big as today. No. So actually plenty of land to be worked, plenty of jobs to be had. It would be a boom to the economy if you bring a bunch more workers from somewhere else. Yeah. Also, Mesopotamia had really been depopulated due to the constant Roman invasions right. and the plagues. Yeah. So, so you, didn't you just people. have a bunch of new people that can cultivate the land and make sure that everything is working better again. The empire is prospering. That's so smart. Like, regardless of the, you know, the fact that I don't agree with, honestly, just war in general, but... In military tactics, that's so brilliant. Or, like, in managing an empire, that's so brilliant. Yeah, exactly. And also, he makes sure, Chopper makes sure that he can't really entirely depopulate those regions. Like, yes, he takes as many people as he can, but he has to make choices. He has to choose priorities. And he makes sure that he gets all the most skilled Roman workers. Like, he gets people who know how to make mosaics, engineers who know how to make bridges, doctors, right. all these people who take a really long time to train and have specific skills that the Romans have well developed. He decides to take all of them here and bring them into his empire to ensure that they work. We even have some Roman-style mosaics from Persia, from the center of the empire, that are just Roman mosaics with Iranian motifs because Shapur just took these people and said, hey, Work for me here. Here you go. Mm. Oh, by the way, I can pay you with real money, not the stuff that the Romans have, which is 90% tin. And yeah, so he does a really good job here if we ignore the massive humanitarian crisis. But, well, it's the ancient world. It happens. Mm -hmm. And what do you think the Romans' response is, Serial? Uh, <laughs> please don't do that. I don't I, like. Can they attack? Because last I've heard from them, they are doing badly. So the Romans can do nothing. The Roman army of the east has been annihilated. All the Romans do is just weakly reoccupy the cities that Shapur has left depopulated. Yeah, and they say, "I guess this is fine. <laughs> Please don't hurt us." It has to be pretty haunting to get to the you know empty city. With maybe, like, a tenth of the population. Yeah. If any. Yeah, it's not a good time for the Romans. They're not doing well. But this is fine, because in this podcast, we antagonize them. So we can just be Yay! like, no, we're the good guys. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, it's fine when we do it. It's okay. Exactly. But back to those people who we've deported. These hundreds yep. of thousands of people we've deported. Possibly millions. To work for us now. Yes, apparently a lot of them were philosophers and scientists and people of the arts. So many works of literature and science were brought to the East and translated so they could be used for the benefit of our empire. So that's great. And it looks like the people who were deported weren't really slaves. It was sort of a middle ground. Because I wasn't able to find too many details, but based on what I've understood, they were basically given a region and told, okay, you people now own these lands. Each of you has this much. You can't move away, but you own these lands and you can work them as your own. So it was like, you can't move from where you are. You can't go back to Rome in territory, but you are free otherwise. 
So it's not a great situation, but it could have been a lot worse. And Shapur brought so many of these people into the empire that he changed his official title from King of Kings of Iran to the title of King of Kings of Iran and non-Iran. You know, the two genders. And eventually that will become the title of all subsequent Sassanid rulers. Another interesting aspect about these people being moved is that a lot of them were Christians because the Roman East was strongly Christianized. And they were persecuted in Roman territory, but now that they're in Mesopotamia, they're free to practice their own religion and convert anyone else who's around them. And this forms quite large communities in eastern Iran, and even some bishoprics being set up. Although, this will eventually evolve into something more complex later on. We'll have to see how this develops. Shapur also, having a bunch of new citizens, decided to found new settlements, or at least refound old ones. So he established specific forts along his borders to deter foreign invasions, and he made sure to settle the Roman captives in underpopulated areas to make the most of the lands that he owned. In particular, he founded the city of Bishapur and Gondishapur in Persia, where he tended to have his court so that it could be more central to the empire and less easy to attack than Tessaphon. And according to Al-Tabari, I don't know if he's mixing himself up with a later Sassanid ruler who does something similar, but Shapur transfers a bunch of the citizens he took from capturing Antioch and puts them in a new city called Biazandiu i Sabur, which means the city of Shapur's, which is better than Antioch. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> The fact that we have names like this, basically like the city that's better than yours, go suck yes. up, you know, just that's hilarious. Yeah, it is very good. And yeah, for those who are listening ahead and know what happens 20 episodes in the future, uh, this apparently just happens again. It's something that I don't know if it's a duplication by Altabari, but he reports it as happening twice, so... Make of it what you will. Okay, so yeah, as we saw with uh, Ardashir, the Sassanid kings also have a significant amount of religious power. So Shapur himself uh, is also dealing with the religious aspect of his empire because he shows himself often to be a pious man. He founds several named fires for him, his close family members, and it looks like he was accompanied on campaign by a bunch of Mazdean priests. But that doesn't really mean he was an especially fundamentalist man, because he made sure to collect knowledge from the Roman regions in the west, and India in the east, and placed them within the Zoroastrian holy scriptures to make a sort of encyclopedia of knowledge from across the world. So he's trying to get a bit from everything. And another important person that shows up during Shapur's reign is a man called Kartir, who is a high priest who is busy building up a code of Zoroastrian laws, hmm. creating a common Zoroastrian religion from the many different local versions that existed before. Mm -hmm. And he's going to be very important for the next few episodes, so remember him, but he's just getting started now. As I mentioned before, his religious fervor doesn't make Zoroastrianism the only religion of the state, since Shapur extends religious tolerance to Jews, Christians, 
and this new cult which is growing up, which is that of Manichaeanism, which is an interesting religion which mixes Buddhism, Christianity, and Zoroastrianism and adds Mani as a future prophet. Okay. Sorry, I'm a bit like trying to wrap my head around it because I had never heard of it before. So that's yes, that's interesting. It is a dead religion, unfortunately, because of mm. reasons we'll get into. But okay. Mahani was apparently a guy who said he was the reincarnation of Zoroaster, Buddha, and Jesus in that order. Wow! And he was now back again to give out a final message. He was there to talk about things. I mean, it doesn't get much more intense than that, you know. If you want legitimacy. Yeah. This is the guy. Yeah, exactly. And he thinks all of these people have good points. Let's take all their teachings and go for it. Hmm. He apparently tried to convert Shapur himself and wrote a tiny explanatory book dedicated to Shapur. But the king seems to have been unconvinced. But he was like, you know what? Sure, just keep doing whatever you want. Fair. Mani himself claims that he was given official license to preach across the empire by Shapur himself. So... Nice. Who knows? Might be good. Yeah. Just like, yeah, I'm not my vibe, but I'm not going to stop you. Go and do your thing. Yeah. Be free. And this might be for just tolerant culture reasons, just in general, that he doesn't want to persecute anybody. But it could also be that Shapur wanted to make sure that Cartier's new religious hierarchy didn't become too powerful and made sure that all these religions in the empire sort of played against each other, so none of them would become powerful enough to challenge the king. Mm-hmm. So you'd get to tolerate people, and also nobody threads your power. So that's good. Yeah. But I thought that this dynasty was going to incorporate Zoroastrianism into the government, or at least lean very strongly that way. Well, two points about that. One point is that it is incorporating it more strongly than before. So Shapur is leading his legitimacy with a lot of Zoroastrian imagery. Let's say it's not the state's religion, but it is the king's religion. Okay. Basically. And what you said will become more and more true as time goes on because of things that happen. So right now, there isn't a real region to have a fully state religion, but Shapur just is happy to let everybody worship as they would like. Okay. Apart from that, the economy is doing great. The Roman coins are reduced to 5% silver content. Sassanid coins are 95% silver content throughout Shapur's reign. Everything is going yeah. great because business on the Silk Road is booming and the Sassanids control the Persian Gulf, which adds trade through India. So that's amazing. Mm. Shapur sponsored upgraded irrigation projects across the empire so that his new settlers from the Roman East can have nice, fertile fields that grow well and not random, pointless land. Mm-hmm. And we have evidence of Roman engineers being used to build a 500-meter-long dam and bridge in Shushtar, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site to this day and was used to irrigate the whole region and is still partially used by the city in the modern day in the 21st century. So that's a mm-hmm. damn good Bridge yeah. slash dam. Wow. Engineers take note. Yeah, that's very impressive. It's great. But, unfortunately, prosperity for the Empire cannot last forever. Because the Romans are back for more. Hey. 
yeah, it looks like some border skirmishes turn into a new full-on conflict because the new Roman Emperor Valerian and those of you who listen to Totalus Rankium or just know history will remember this name. <laughs> the Emperor Valerian has arrived in person in Antioch and wants to take the fight to Shapur. I mean, I remember Valerian, you know. Do you remember Valerian? Great. Excited to see how he becomes Valerian. Yes. <laughs> because with the Romans marching into Mesopotamia, winning a few early victories against the border guards, Shapur heads over to besiege the city of Kare, which is, you know, notable because it's where Crassus was defeated all that time ago. And during his siege, Shapur was met by the Emperor Valerian with about 70,000 soldiers. Now, Shapur abandoned these sieges to try and focus on the field battle. But fortunately for him, those cities had some sort of epidemic, which then spread to the Roman forces and reduced their effectiveness. And then at last, the two sides met for a climactic battle. Whoa. The Roman emperor versus the Sassanid king of kings. And this is how the Shahnameh describes it. There was such a wailing of trumpets and clashing of Indian bells that the moon and the vault of heaven shook. There were war drums strapped to the elephants and their thundering noise carried for two miles. The earth trembled, dust swirled, lances glittered like fire, and the sky seemed to rain down stars. That sounds very intense. So, let's go. And well, how do you think it goes, Serial? I assume you know. Well, I remember... <laughs> I don't remember enough, but I remember the general gist of, you know... <laughs> okay. Very funny for the Romans. <laughs> yes. Hilarious, very much. even. Because it is a crushing victory. The Roman army is utterly annihilated. And not only that, but Shapur managed to have a great prize. Yep. He captured and... the Roman Emperor Valerian alive. Yep. The first time in Roman history this has ever happened. And we'll talk about this for a while. Yes, I have a whole bit. <laughs> because the Roman Emperor was captured together with his Praetorian Prefect, some senators who had accompanied him, and surviving members of the army, presumably a few thousand based on what we know. All of these were carried to Persia as spoils of war, and we'll find out about Valerian's fate later on. Now, some later Byzantine sources say that Valerian was captured by trickery after being asked to come and negotiate with Shapur for a truce, but, you know, it seems like it's the Romans trying to say, no, we, our, our emperor wasn't captured, they, were, they tricked us, and it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. fair. It, that mm. never happened. Yes. You have no proof? So, now I can reveal the third figure in the relief I mentioned. The third figure is the Emperor Valerian being captured. Yep. So Shapur now has a beautiful relief in his empire with one dead Roman Emperor, one kneeling before him, and one being captured. Which is pretty If that badass. doesn't make it clear to you <laughs> of it's our like, relationship with the Romans currently. Well. <laughs> yes. Sweet, sweet victory. Yes. And we're not really sure what happened to Valerian, but there are several options I will mention to you. So one author claims that Valerian surrendered himself to Shapur because his army was mutinous and about to kill him, which sounds a bit weird. Mm. But, you know, again, trying to justify things. 
for his fate, we have several options. Because one option says that he was captured and used as a footstool by Shapur whenever he needed to get onto his horse. That's harsh. And every time he would do that, Shapur would say, This is true, and not what the Romans delineate on board or plaster. Oof. So saying, I don't care if you call yourself Parthicus Maximus, an emperor is still my footstool. So yep. shut up. Yep. Woof. And apparently, when Valerian died of old age, he was flayed and stuffed, with this puppet being placed in a temple and shown to foreign ambassadors to say, Hey, here's my Roman Emperor plush toy. That's Look terrifying. What, what are you happens. saying? <laughs> like, it just clicked yes. for me. And no. Yeah. No. Yes. No. <laughs> yes, plush Valerian is a thing. Oh my god. Like, like, pl- like plush or taxidermied? Taxidermied. Yeah, yeah. different things. Yeah, the eyes friend. are going to be a bit weird. No, that's horrifying. <laughs> I do not approve of yeah. this. Yeah. Plus, did we have the entire Valerian? I thought something happens, you know, after he dies. We have the whole Valerian, yes. Yeah. I thought he would be missing his head. I don't no, know. no, we just have the whole Valerian. Okay, he's okay. Just, he's so just, just, just the entire man. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cyril, it would be weird to have a taxidermied man without a head. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> of all the weird things and all the reasons yeah. this would be weird. Yeah, yeah, no. It happens. You know, you have a road emperor, you want to make the best of it. <sighs> Other options are that, well, a, a modern historian claims to have found the palace of Valerian next to the one of Shapur in the city of Bishapur, which is a new city that Shapur founded in Persia, mm-hmm. which might indicate that he was well treated, but it's not really certain. Altabari says that Valerian and his army were deported to the east and made to build the dam system I mentioned earlier. And then Valerian was either killed or freed after having his nose cut off. Mm-hmm. Ouchie. The Shahnameh claims that Valerian was asked to build a bridge by Shapur. And when it was done, he was rewarded with whatever treasure he desired. So presumably that palace before. Hmm. And yeah, this is also when we get the Roman bridge, which is furthest east in the world, in Lower Mesopotamia. Because it was built by the prisoners of war the Shapur had taken from Valerian's battle. Oh. And it is called the Emperor's Bridge. I see. Because he was made to build it. And yeah, it's really weird because it looks very familiar to like Roman bridges you might find in Spain. Yeah, or but just Italy. entirely out of just the like, usual geographical. Of, like, yeah, yeah, because they decided we have some Roman prisoners, might as well put them to good use. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. So, Serial, what do you think happened to Valerian? What would you do if you'd captured the Emperor of your traditional rival? Which of these versions is your favorite? Well, I think I would just continuously show it off. But I don't, I guess, I'm like, I don't know if I would treat him badly. Like, I mean, footstool isn't too bad. It's humiliating, but it's not, you know, terrible. Yeah. The emperor just needs to kneel before you and then rise. Yeah, we've had more merciful kings in the past, you know. True. We've had much worse, though. Yes, we've also had much worse. (laughs) Like, Darius the Great would not have done this. No. Darius the Great would have impaled the man. Yeah. Yes. And displayed the results. Yes, exactly. In this case, he's flayed only after he's dead in one version. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so what's your favorite version? Treating him nicely and uh, 
parading him around whenever you can. I will go with that just because, like, that seems sensible to me. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, there we go. Although I do love the taxidermied Valerian. That's great. That is terrifying. Yes. I've decided that in future Roman wars, whenever we lose a war, we'll have to hand back Valerian. And I need to remember to track where Valerian is because it's good to know who gets him in the end. Hmm. But yeah, now that we've captured the Roman Emperor and the Roman Army of the East has been destroyed for the second time in two decades, let's enjoy the fruits of our labor. Yes, finally. Shapur pillages Syria, Cappadocia, and Cilicia, together with his son, the king of Armenia, takes other hundreds of thousands of people back to Iran and Mesopotamia. He encounters a few smaller Roman armies in the area, and they were all crushed and their commanders killed. But there was an unfortunate event that happened around this point, or at least unfortunate for Shapur himself. Because trying to deport hundreds of thousands of people, his forces were spread rather thin carrying all the loot and people. Mm -hmm. So the ruler of the city-state of Palmyra, a man called Odonathus, managed to capture some stragglers of the Sassanid baggage train along the way and harass Sassanid raiding parties, and he even retook some smaller cities such as Nisibis. Now, Roman sources, of course, claim that he later went on to try and march against Tessaphon, but there's no clear evidence of this, and it looks like they're just trying to say, no, we didn't entirely suck, something was okay. Mm -hmm. But yeah, whatever the case may be, Odonathos began to build his own power base in the east and made any further invasion by Shapur's armies more impractical than useful because the east is depopulated twice. Now there's somebody sort of competent in charge. Let's just relax. We don't Mm -hmm. need this. And yeah, it's from this time period that Shapur commissions the royal reliefs of his victories against the Romans, with the most glorious one showing Shapur on horseback, with the three Roman emperors paying homage. And of course, he made an appropriate relief of victory over Valerian at the place of Naksharostam, which is where his father had the investiture and where we had a ton of other Achaemenid stuff. Mm -hmm. So we are remembering. That everything is good. And yeah, so now that Shapur has won his third Roman war, he can just relax into a comfortable old age. In the last years of his life, the independence of the Palmyrene Empire in the Roman East would have been a good opportunity for an invasion. But Shapur was a wise man. Shapur realized that if he dies halfway through a war, that's going to be a mess for the succession. It's going to be mm, complicated it turns to deal out, with. You know. Let's not do that, please. So he decides, you know what, fine. I've invaded the West enough times. I don't want to do this. I don't want to risk my heir to the throne dying in battle for this stuff. I don't want to risk myself dying. Mm -hmm. Let's just keep everything peaceful and write the succession. And Shapur is so rigorous about his succession that he makes... Sure, because most kings have a succession plan for their heir, right? That's normal. If you're a good king, you do that. Shapur has a succession plan for his heir. What happens if he dies? What happens if he dies? What happens if he dies? (laughs) He has like a list of all his sons in order of competence. Everything tied. I want these people to all succeed me in order. Do not deviate from this plan. Okay, Trust me, I, I might thought clear. about this. 
Yes, please. I've given them all titles in order of how capable they are. The more powerful ones are the ones who should succeed me. This is what I want. Hopefully Nobody none of them take it up. the wrong way. <laughs> that I literally exactly. have put all of my children in a line of like most favorite to least favorite. Yeah, pretty much. Somebody's going to be unhappy, but you know. I mean, to be well, fair. Hopefully like, that could, has no It could be like, oh, scars. I think you're going to be more competent in this position. That doesn't necessarily mean I love you more or less. Like if one of them is yeah. good at math and one of them is not. You might not give the, you know, archivist... Yeah, if one of them is not going to be a good king of kings, well, then that's fine. People have different skills. But with that said, <laughs> you know... With that said, somebody will take offense to this. We'll see in future episodes. Certainly. Bye. But in the end, Shapur appoints his son, Hormizd I, as his heir, the former king of Armenia who had helped him in a lot of Western wars is his favorite. He is clearly the most capable. He'll be king. Hmm. And then we're told that he died of illness in the city of Bishapur in May of 270, oh. somewhere in his own 70s. Hmm. And according to the Shahnameh, he told his son Hormiz to be the splendor of the nobility, the sanctuary of the poor, to be kind and generous. And thus ends the life of Shapur I. Who is the one who finally brought us Valerian. Yeah. That was so impressive. And there we go. I'm so ready. Nice. I'm happy to hear that because he is very cool. Also, the hilarious thing to me is that in this same period, if you go through Roman emperors, there's been like 15 Roman emperors during his reign alone. Like, yes, yes, they're I not know going they're through a badly, good time. Which, you know. <laughs> We're helping with them going badly yep. because we... You know, killed one emperor, humiliated another, and imprisoned a third. Yes. So, also, we just destroyed a random eastern army with no emperor attached to it. Yeah, because they sent it our way for some Yeah, they were just like, well, fine, might as well. So, yeah. So, you're happy with Shapur? You think he's uh, lived up to expectations? I, yeah, that was really amazing. Nice. Very good. In that case, I think we should get ready to rate him and see how he does compared to our other kings. So, our first category is final moments. How interesting was his death? Dying of old age after planning, like, over-planning his succession. Making sure everything was nice and clean. Giving last wise words of advice to his son. Yeah, that was you know, perfect. Die in his 70s at the time. Definitely a good like, target. Not shocking or impressive in the sense of like, oh, that way to go is... Like, will stay with me forever. But honestly, knowing how this tends to go, I am so impressed that not only is like, oh, he's got an heir and everything is like tied up with a nice bow and nicely. No, no, no. This is like, this should hold for the next three <laughs> generations if everything goes according to plan. Yes, I have contingencies for my contingencies yes. for my contingencies. Please just do everything in order. I'm giving you advice. I know what happens when civil wars happen. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it's a good death. I like that it's, again, I'm not going super high, but I think I'm going to match what I gave his father and give him a two. Because it's like, we have the information. He has a, a goodbye speech for his son. Yeah. He's planned everything out. Good death would recommend. <laughs> yeah, like I said, not that impressive in the sense of a way to die, but very impressive in how everything is put together. 
So I will go with a two as well. I think that's fair. Two as well? Okay. So with a two and a two, we get a two out of ten for final moments. Our next category is Battle Hardness. How good was he at war and fighting? Amazing. Well, very good. Very. So let's recap his achievements. What did he do? He conquered the city of Hatra, which had remained unconquered beforehand. He managed to defeat the Emperor Gordian and kill him in battle and humiliate the Emperor Philip afterwards. So that's good. He managed to conquer part of the Kushan Empire and establish this Kushano-Sasanid dynasty and frequently help them out in the east to try and, uh, you know, expand their side of the empire. He suppressed a rebellion that happened at the heart of his empire at the start of his reign, quickly and efficiently. He destroyed 60,000 Romans at Barbalissus and pillaged Syria and Cappadocia without any problems. He conquered Armenia. He defeated Valerian and his 70,000 soldiers later on at Carrhae, captured the emperor alive, managed to continue pillaging the Roman East. The empire is as large as it's been. It is stable and orderly. He did an amazing job. Yep, no complaints. The only downsides I can say are that the Roman sources tell us that he was defeated at the beginning by Gordian and that he was defeated at the beginning by Valerian. Fair. However, this could just be the Romans saying that while it was just Shapur, you know, sending out scouts to know where the the Romans are, the scouts being intercepted, and then having to retreat. We don't really know how it works. You know, Shapur doesn't tell us about these defeats, but to be fair, he wouldn't. Yeah. So, your choice how much to evaluate this, because I think the Shapur definitely deserves either a 9 or a 10. How seriously we want to consider these defeats is probably what will make it. True. Because, like, we've been taking what the Romans say also with a grain of salt, right? So we should do the same here. Yeah. If it makes some sense that he would not mention these defeats to look good, you know. Yeah, I mean, we know of his victories from a big document he writes that yeah. is basically his list of achievements. Yes, all my these victories I conquered. These are the order. people I defeated. Yeah. You know, he's not going to say, oh, but, but that time it didn't go super well, but I'm telling you anyway, for honesty's sake. Yeah. He doesn't have to do that. Yeah, he's a king. He doesn't need to. But in defense of these possible defeats, they amount to nothing in the end. Yes. He kills one of the emperors who did this and captures the other. Yeah, like, assume they happened. It's not like it's a super consequential defeat. Like, other defeats that we considered were, for example, like Darius the Great losing against the Scythians and against the Greeks, Mm -hmm. where it's like... Losing against the Scythians was a little bit annoying. He didn't expand as much, but it did stabilize the empire. And the Greeks, kind of annoying, but nothing terrible. Do we want to give Shapur the 10? Saying that, yeah, those were minor defeats, but, you know, it's like having some guys die during a battle. That's just how war works. It's not a defeat that you lost some people. Mm Mm-hmm. Or do we say that, no, to get a 10, he would have to be absolutely perfect and nothing ever go wrong. Did we ever give a 10 to anybody? Well, I'm sure you can guess. Darius? No, Darius got a 9. No, Cyrus got an 8, actually. The 10s are Alexander the Great. Oh, yeah, of course. Seleucus the First and Mithridates the Second, who annihilates the nomads so hard that That they they don't don't come come back back. for 300 years. (laughs) So that's pretty harsh. 
So what did they, like, did they fail in anything? Alexander gets his men to mutiny against him in India, and he has to turn back against his wishes. But, so I mean... that's part of military. That was also like, can we please stop? We've gone across half the world. Yeah, but, you know... Control yeah. your men, Alexander. So Lucas loses the city of Babylon at some point mm-hmm. when he left it under a subordinate, yeah. and then he comes back and retakes it. Yeah. So it's a similar case of, yeah, it's a defeat, but in the end it doesn't amount to much. Mm-hmm. Mithridates the Great, he... What does he do? Mithridates the Great takes a while to get his initial victory and then doesn't expand much further west against the Seleucids, but he does a pretty good job overall. Yep. I think someone we gave a 9-2 was Ardashir because he fought to a stalemate with the Romans hmm. and conquered an empire. I think Shapur is just... I think he just never loses permanently. Yeah. I think. I think I'm happy to give him a 10. If you want to give him a 9 to balance it out, feel free, but I think he deserves a 10. Yeah, I think the defeats are not... They're not impactful enough to actually have any consequences, so... If they did have consequences, even if they were small, you know, it's like, oh, we never recovered this, so there's never, you know... But no, things get solved pretty quickly, so... I think we should go for a 10. Because how many more times are we going to be able to... Yeah, come on. Oh, also, just before I plug in the final number, he does kind of lose a bit of his baggage train to Odinathus, but I feel like that's just something that happens when you're deporting hundreds of thousands yeah. of people. Fair <laughs> it's enough. a thing. But yeah, so congratulations, Shapur. With a 10 and a 10, you get a 20 out of 20 for battle hardness, our fourth only ruler to do so. Our next category is scheminess. How good was he at plots and manipulations? According to the Romans, he was pretty good at it. (laughs) Because he managed to trick Valerian into coming to a discussion and then captured him. (laughs) That's not like a whole scheme. That's just like, let's see if it works. And it did. Yeah, like, oh my god, he's actually doing it. He's actually doing it. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's just come down for tea. I promise. Yeah, the scheminess is like, he doesn't do too much. Like, if we believe the Romans, then okay, maybe some points. If we don't believe them, then not much. I don't know if you want to consider scheminess, but this is probably more Aaron Shine. The fact that instead of choosing to conquer parts of the Roman Empire, he chose to basically just transfer its population. Mm -hmm. So he was clever enough to, you know, not go for the high cost option that is sort of the more normal option Mm. but he went for the slightly more elaborate option but that will still end up costing him less and benefiting the empire more Mm -hmm. but i don't know if you want to consider that a scheme or if that's uh, not what it falls into it's not really that scheme yeah that's fair enough I think I'm going to give him one point for the capturing Valerian story, because even if it didn't happen, there is at least a story about it. So it's something. Sure. But not much more. We can can give one point as a treat. Yes. So you're also giving one? Yes. But truly, like, this is not a story of manipulation and lies and, you know, and conspiracy. This is just a story of this is how you plan a thing and this is how you... Like, militarily 
achieve that. Yeah, pretty much. So it's important to have. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, yes? I just thought of a new scheminess thing. Oh. Because we do have the story at the beginning with Hatra and him sort of seducing the princess and then oh, God, scheming yeah. to get into the city. But that wasn't even, like, no, if he had been in on that, like, if the, if it was the other way around, if the princess, like, had no intention of betraying her city, but then he was like, oh, but, like, I am so handsome and I will, you know, we will fall in love. And, like, and that was his purpose for courting her. Mm-hmm. Then yes, absolutely. But it was the other way around. It was her just being like, oh, I, like, even though, of course, he might have encouraged it, but he, I assume, because of the way you told it, he had full intention to be like, oh, I like you. I will give you the rights that you haven't had. Like, I will, you know, I will treat you like you deserve to be treated. And I will. And then he realized that, no, like, she she was fine. She was just a terrible person to her own city. And he was like, God, no. God, you suck. Okay. I think I'm just going to give him an extra point for that. I'm not. I think that I like you that. You can do that. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. So with a 2 and a 1, we get a 3 out of 20 for skeeviness. Our next category is shock factor. How shocking was this man? I think he has something here. Well, he had this woman from Hatra, the princess of Hatra, dragged to death behind a horse. Right. That's yeah, pretty that harsh. Was, that was intense. Like, I understand that she wasn't a very nice person, but also that's kind of harsh. <laughs> He then sacked and pillaged a lot of the Eastern Roman Empire. So that was intense. He deported hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people into his empire. Which, when you say that coldly, doesn't sound that much. But when you imagine each individual person, like, you know, a mother with a two-year-old having to trek 200 kilometers with the army Uh because the empire told her so, and moving to somewhere that she doesn't know... That's pretty harsh. Agreed. Agreed. That's not something I would condone in a modern politician. Not good. So that's pretty intense. That's like mass deportation of people, which is a lot. Then a shock factor, we have, well, we have Valerian. We have you capture the Roman emperor alive and possibly use him as a footstool, which personally would have been my go-to because... What you want to do is dress him up really nice as an emperor and then and just then have him kneel before yeah. you and then step on him and then be like, ha. From a theatrical look at me. standpoint, yes, I get it. This is what a villain would do in a movie. Yeah, I mean, monarchy is nothing if not theater. That, yes. So, that is true. You want to show yourself dressed beautifully and amazing and shining, stepping on a guy who's dressed beautiful and amazing and shining, showing that, yes, you're better than him. So that's pretty good on the shock factor. And then the taxidermied Valerian. <laughs> Which, again, is personally th- something I would have gone for if I were living at the time. Because you want to remind people for generations to come that you did this to a Roman emperor. Mm-hmm. When you receive Roman ambassadors, you want to show them. That's oh, like, oh, here. Terrifying. Have a look. Oh, th- oh, this is just my taxidermied Valerian. I hope he doesn't scare you. Yes, he's, he's in a growling bear pose, but... You can leave your just, coat uh, over there fun. on the Valerian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just leave it there. It's fine. So, you know, just taxidermy him to have his hands up as a coat hanger. <laughs> yeah, lovely times. So that's pretty shocking. And otherwise, 
I don't know if you want to give like a rounding up for the fact that he ranks his sons in order of competence. <laughs> I think, I mean, yeah, I guess that is pretty shocking in the sense of how well prepared everything was. Yeah, that's true. In the fact that like, not only he prepared everything, but he was like, yeah, yeah, I've thought of like at least 30 plans, the entire alphabet of plans. <laughs> Yeah, basically, he's seen 13 million possibilities yes. and has chosen the one that works. Yes. So yeah, so I'm, I'm going for a pretty high shock factor. I think I'm going to start with five for mass deportations. Yes. Going to add a one for the princess dragged to death behind a horse. Yeah. And then a two for generic Valerian shenanigans for a total of eight. That seems pretty That's okay. my thought. I think I'll go for a seven. I'm, it's not, you know. Okay, that's fair enough. But I agree with what we have listed here. <laughs> Those are the key attributes that he has. So, okay, with an 8 and a 7, we get a 15 out of 20 for shock factor, making him the fifth most shock fact. No, actually, wait. One, two, three. The fourth most shock factory person hmm. on the podcast. So he's doing well. Do we haven't had, like... When we have a really high scorer is, like, off the charts. Like, when someone is really shocking, yeah, it's, it's just everything is in that episode. Yeah, it's very min-maxed towards shocking. Like, of course you have to put it through the filter of we are treating this from the lens of, you know, we are assuming that there's cruelty in battle and, like, there is, like, a certain amount of, yeah, you of know, course. things that would be considered shocking, you know, now... That it's, well, since we're viewing this from a very particular point of history, then it's like, yeah, everyone is doing this. It's no longer shocking if everyone has this. Yeah, exactly. As we saw in our, um, in our Chandragupta special on Patreon, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yes. No good man can become a king. Mm -hmm. No king goes to heaven. Yep. <laughs> They've all done horrible things. Yep. But there is an especial shocking factor here. Okay, and our next category is Aaron Shine. How good was he for the Empire in general and Iran in particular? Incredible. Amazing. Let's list his achievements, shall we? He won three wars with the Romans. He expanded the Empire into Armenia. He reconquered the bits of Roman Mesopotamia that were lost by the Parthians. He conquers bits of the Kushan Empire. He creates the Kushano-Sasanian Empire. He increases the population of the empire by several hundred thousands, if not millions. And specifically, he ensures that he can import a bunch of skilled people who know how to do things that aren't present in the empire. A bunch of very skilled engineers, artists, scientists, philosophers, all that sort of jazz. Does a lot of the stuff that way. He founds a bunch of new cities, including Shapur's city that is better than Antioch. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah he builds massive irrigation projects so that mesopotamia which had long been depopulated can flourish again and can sustain this new population and grow prosperous the economy of the empire is doing great his coins are amazing and they continue to be unparalleled in the world and he leaves a succession plan that is so crazily detailed that he ranks his sons in order. Yeah. So a 10. Yeah. <laughs> for me, at least. Like, downsides... Uh, like, 
The only thing you could say against him, and it's a small thing, is that he doesn't fully reform the Empire, but that's just because his father already did that. Yeah. Shapur just keeps up everything, making sure that it keeps in order, it keeps stable. He makes sure that all his sons are kings, but it's not hereditary, so things don't get messy. And they can help him rule the Empire. Like, his son and heir, Hormizd, rules Armenia and helps out with the Roman Wars and is very competent at that, and that's why he's the heir. So, does a very good job at that. So I think, yeah, he fully deserves a 10. I don't know what else you want this man to have done. It's just like, come on. Yeah, like, honestly, it could have just been like, oh, I keep the empire that my father handed me down stable. And that already would have been a great achievement. Yeah. It could have been one of these quiet, you know, episodes where it's like, yeah, there's not much, but because just like not much goes wrong. So, you know, Mm -hmm. but so many things go right. Which is amazing. It's good stuff. So yeah, with a 10 and a 10, he gets a 20 out of 20 for Aaron Shine, reaching a prestigious club shared by Cyrus the Great, Darius the Great, Mithridates the Great, Ardashir the Great, and Shapur mm. the First. The problem with Shapur the First is that the next Shapur is also very good, so it's difficult to oh, no. decide who gets to be the Great. <laughs> so it's like... The great and the He's great Janud. Yeah, the great the, and the great. The great and the simple. awesome, you know. Yeah, that works. Okay, and our next category is face of faces. What do you think this man looked like? And now I can send you his face. Well, uh, not his to, face, his uh, his crown. Draw him. Right, right. Yes. yes. Give well, me some points. Send you his crown so you know what he looks like. Give me some stuff. So he has a slight variation from his father's crown, but. Yeah, I think I prefer Chopper's one. It's slightly more elaborate. It's a good look. Okay, so Sarah has finished their drawing. Let me pick it up and describe it to you all. Excellent. Love it. Yeah, you're welcome. Because, yeah, of course, of course, Sarah has chosen the only logical <laughs> thing to, to depict, which is Chopper sitting on a lovely chair. He is lounging about. He has a nice cup full of wine in his hand, a bow at his back, a lovely crown crenellated with a big poof of hair around it. He has this traditional beard, nice floofy hair, and a nice long cloak. And at his feet are two boots, but those boots are placed firmly upon a planking Valerian, who is there lying with his laurel wreath, looking dejected, as well he should, because come on, man. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this is truly the essence of Shapur. Thank you, Serial. It is great. You're very welcome. And if anybody wants to see this portrait, you can go to the episode notes at the bottom of your podcast screen. Or you can go to our website on Serial's Portrait Gallery or the Discord. And now let me show Serial what he actually looked like. Yeah, we have the relief. Now, we have uh, two reliefs. Oh. Because one of them is the famous relief, which is what we're going to use for his face of faces. And then there's another one, which I don't use because it's slightly harder to see, but it has all three emperors in it. Nice. So, here we go. Consider that the legs of the horses are full person tall. Whoa. Oh, this is incredible. Awesome. This is so majestic. Yes, I love this. good stuff. I love this so much. 
so intense. The crown is so cool. You can see the folds on his trousers and like decorations of the. So it's Shapur on horseback, even though I think the horses are like made slightly smaller than they would be proportionally, just so like you can focus on the people. Um, holding his sword and holding out a hand. He's holding like the hands of the. Well, with the other hand, he's holding the hand of the Emperor Valerian, right. who has been captured. Yep. So he's just the, showing the that bound he, ha- hands. he has yes. him. Yes. And kneeling before him is Philip the Arab. Right. Which this is, is really cool. Humiliated. This gets a 10 from me. I love this. Yes. It's I also mean, it contemporary, right? This is, yeah, this is him Incredible. making it, which is great. Which is like, this is my favorite portrait of all the ones I've it's encountered so, cool. so far. It has like, so much unless detail. Unless the last 10 kings have something amazing, this is my favorite. Mm-hmm. This is very good. And here on the bottom, we have one that is slightly more faded, but it has all the emperors. Oh, yeah, but it's still see, really cool. Yeah. yeah, you can see Philip kneeling in front of Shapur on horseback. Then under uh, the Valerian, horse. The... Yeah, under the horse is Gordian, who yeah. has been killed. And being taken by the hand is Valerian just next yep. to Shapur. Yep. Amazing. So, I love this. This is very nice. I appreciate it. It's great. Really cool depiction. And yeah, everybody, please look at these because they're amazing. Yes. Yes, he will Shepard not regret it. Yes, good man. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so I think we've agreed that a 10 is the only thing we can give him. Yes. So let's give it to him. With a 10 and a 10, he gets a 5 out of 5 for Face of Faces. Wonderful. Next up is lengthiness. How long do you think this man ruled for? Oh, um... So we're counting probably when his father died, right? And not the period when he was... We're counting his father. Yeah. That is a massive confusion among historians. Okay. Because people say he ruled for these years or these years plus two, and it's unclear. Nobody knows. But what we are going to count is from when his father died. Right. So he is sole ruler of the empire. Hmm. Every time I say empire now, I have to think of plumas and being like, well, that's not cr- <laughs> like that's not technically the, the correct way. Yes. But you know what, what we mean. So that's the point. Of the big blob of land where people live. Yes. What could it be? I don't know. He was already like in his 20s or so, I have to assume, when he got Yeah, we remember that himself. he was in his 20s when his father started his rebellion. And then so he, he lived was helping his, his father out. Personally. Right. And you told me he lived like into his 70s. So I'm going to say 50 yes. years. Because at least it has to be that. No, it is not 50 years. Because 50 years includes also all the reign of his father. Oh, oh okay. Because it was in his 20s when his father rebelled in, at the start. So okay. he has slightly less. Okay, well, then let's say 40. Actually, a lot less. He managed to do all that in just 28 years. What? Okay, I did not think it would go like that. 40 was already like, I mean, it has to be, right? Nope. Did a lot of stuff in wow. not very much time. That's even more impressive, honestly. He is very cool. He is a cool man. So yeah, he reigned 28 years from 242 to 270. And divide that by 10 gives him a 2.8 out of 5 for lengthiness. And that brings us to the final score, which is a grand total of 67.8 out of 100 placing him fourth overall above Seleucus I and below Alexander the Great. Wow. Wow. So 
much more competent well ruler than Alexander. But we know this yes, is not definitely. how the points yeah. work. They're not yeah. being ranked on competence. And we're going to decide who the best one is at the royal hunt at the end of it all. Exactly. But if we're just looking at points, at pizzazz, at drama, <laughs> he is fourth. At entertainment. Yes. So that's very good. Congratulations, Shapur. You are pretty yeah. intense. And that leads us to the final question, where I think we have an answer. I'll let you do your say, little thing. Is he Valerian <laughs> enough? Is he restorative enough? Is he deporting thousands of people enough to be a Shahanshah or just a Shahanshah? He has to get it. This was yes, really cool. I mean, if not him. He is who? a Shahanshah. He is the best boy. He deserves it. So congratulations, Shapur. You can go into the Paradise Gardens and tell your father that he may have built the Empire, but you put it on the map. And you are both equally great. You are very impressive. That's incredible. (laughs) Let's see how long we can keep the streak going. His father chose well, you know? Exactly. Let's see if Shapur chose his heir equally well. Well, let's see how that goes, because what on one hand is like, did he make the right decision? And on the other hand, did his decisions, like, were they respected? So, I guess. Two very valid questions. We we'll will have see. to find out. So yeah, so thank you for listening. We hope you had a good time. If you want to support our podcast, there are several ways to do that. You can uh, join our Patreon, like our new patron, Robin McHugh. Thank you very much. Thank you where we're going through the history of the Moria kings of India. Ashoka the Great is going to be coming out next month. That which was been an episode. Week. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a fun time and you get a bunch of other backup episodes that we still have. Oh, wait, no, sorry. Have we done Ashoka? No, we haven't done Ashoka. We've done Bindusara. Yeah, we've done his uh, Ashoka not yet. But, but I, we talked so much yeah. about him. I was like, yeah, we've definitely <laughs> talked about him already. Yes, that. Yeah, otherwise, if you don't want to support us monetarily, that's fine. But we'd appreciate if you could leave us a review on your podcast app of choice so more people know that we exist and can join us. Yeah. Spread the word. Yes. And yeah, we hope you join us next time for Hormizd the First. And we'll see, will Shapur's heir do as good a job? Will he do better? Will he crush Uh, the empire? Who knows? Well, you mentioned that not three people would get Shahanshah in a row. So now I'm just, like, worried about how yet. bad it's going we'll to be. We'll see how, what happens. Uh, it might be. Who knows? Oh, boy. But, yeah. So we hope you have a lovely week, and we'll see you next time. Take care, Goodbye. everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>